Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to see you today. If I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, my name is Jake Box. I'm the lead pastor here at Midtown Church. I'm so glad that you're joining us this morning as we continue a series that we started just last week uh, that we're calling, as you see, uh, Note to Self, a truth that will set us free. And I'm really excited about this, this series and our time and this work because what we're doing is we're looking at these basic fundamental truths specifically about who God is, like what, what is he like? And we're coming at it from the perspective of saying, man, if we were to really believe these truths about God, it would set us free. It would set us free from so much that messes us up and weighs us down. And the reason we're saying that we, it will set us free is because that's the language that Jesus used in John chapter 8, 31 and 32. Like the key verse for this whole series is when Jesus says that if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. It'll set you free. It'll set you free as we saw last week when we took note of this great truth about God, that God is great and therefore I don't have to be in control. If we would just believe that God is great, that he's you know, all powerful and that he is all knowing, that he's in control, that he's sovereign, then we could be so set free from worry and anxiety and getting angry when things don't go our way because we could trust that he's great. So we don't have to be in control and that, that would be awesome. But here's the thing. With all of these true statements about God, they, like I said, are kind of basic fundamental true statements. And most of us here, is my, you know, my guess is that most of us in this room today, we would, we would say, yeah, like confessionally, we would say we believe those things. Like intellectually, we'd say, yeah, that's what, that's what I think is right. But no one here, I think it's safe to say, no one here actually functionally lives like they believe these things all the time. That everybody in this room is on an equal field in the sense that we don't functionally live like these true statements are true all the time. We don't act like we actually believe them. And, and there's different reasons for that. Some pastors have called it spiritual amnesia, right? You just, like, I know this is true. And then you go to bed and you wake up the next day and you like forgotten everything you ever believed or ever said is true, right? You just spiritual amnesia. Uh, I think that uh, Paul was on to something in Romans chapter 1 verse 25, this is one of the effects of sin is this, that we exchange the truth about God for a lie, and therefore we, you know, we worship created things instead of the creator, and that this is kind of a normal thing. This is an effect of sin, that we often are exchanging the truth about God for a lie. And though we might say we believe it functionally, we live as if we don't believe it, and in that, there's the exchange. And as a result, man, we get weighed down we, we, we sin, we, we, we contribute to the brokenness of this world. It, 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 it's, we are enslaved by these wrong beliefs that lead to wrong behaviors. But man, if we could really believe these things, if we could take note of them and keep them in front of us and call our hearts to believe them, let God call us to believe these true statements about him, we would be set free. It would be awesome. So that's what we're looking at in the series that we're in right now. And the true statement that we're going to focus in on this morning is perhaps the, the statement about God that we most often, most frequently exchange for a lie. And that is the, the truth statement that God is good. That God is good. Because we often disbelieve in the goodness of God, it, it leads to uh, all kinds of sin and tragedy and pain and dissatisfaction and all kinds of stuff. 
The two things that kind of come directly from disbelieving that God is good that I want to just point out as we get going this morning is this. One, one thing that uh, disbelief and goodness of God leads us to do is we, we believe that God's holding out on us. It causes us to believe that God doesn't want the best for us. You know, when you think, okay, God's rules and God's instructions and what he says, the way to live, those are all there because God wants to keep us under his thumb. He doesn't want us to really experience real life. He just likes to keep us from the good stuff. And so we distrust God's heart, and therefore it's this idea that we think, man, God's not good. And to obey him would be to miss out on what really would be good. And that was at the heart of the first sin, right? Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve eat of the forbidden eat the forbidden fruit or the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's like, this is one thing, one rule. Don't eat of this. And they think, man, God doesn't want us to eat of this tree because then we'd really be like him. And he wants to keep what's best from us. And so we're going to do this because we distrust God's heart. We don't actually believe that he is good. And man, we've been buying into that lie again and again for generation after generation, day after day, moment after moment, on and on and on. It's, man, it, it's, that lie wreaked havoc on our world and continues to wreak havoc on our world that comes out of this disbelief in the goodness of God. Another thing that comes as a result of disbelief in the goodness of God is that we begin to believe that God doesn't actually care about us. He doesn't care about us. Like personally, this is a big one for me. Like last week I talked about how I get stressed out and worried, and sometimes it's because I don't believe that God is great, and so I don't think that he's going to come through. He's powerful enough to come through, so i gotta, I got to be in control. And that's, that's true sometimes, but way more often I stress out and I get worried and all that stuff because I, it's not that I don't think God can, like he doesn't have the ability to make things work out the way that I think they should work out. More often I stress out because I just don't think God will. <laughs> it's not that he, he can't, it's just I don't think that he will cause things to work out the way that I think they should work out. And when they don't work out that way, then I like, question God's goodness. God, you could have done this, but you didn't do this. That must mean that you don't care about me. And then I feel lonely, and the world is a scary place when you think that the God of the universe doesn't actually care about you. But when you look around at the world, certainly we see that there's a million examples that will reinforce that circumstantial conviction, like, oh, man, God does, must not care because look at what's happening. You lose your job or you have a miscarriage. Your friend betrays you or your spouse divorces you. you know, you're sexually abused or a loved one dies or, or fellow student gets murdered on campus. And you think, man, there's the evidence. That's all evidence I need. God clearly is not good because if he was good, he would have done something about this. And things wouldn't have turned out this way. So he must not care. And then what are you left with? You're left with thinking, okay, so now I've got to take things into my own hands because there's no God looking out for me, so I've got to be the one that's in control. So this morning, we're going to look at this truth statement, and God is good. And I hope that I do it justice. What I am so thankful for is that the Bible is so clear on this teaching. God is good. I just hope that I can do a good job explaining what the Bible says about that, all right? So, you know, pray for me on that. But that if you're a non-Christian, if you don't believe that Jesus is your Savior and that he died for you and rose again and you haven't put your faith in him yet, I'm so glad you're here. 
Because I know this is one of the big questions that often kind of keeps people from leaning into believing that the God of the Bible is true. And so I hope this message is helpful. And if you're a Christian here, I pray that you would lean into this as well. Because like I said at the beginning, none of us functionally fully believe that God is good. And so I would just ask that during this message, you would begin praying. God, would you help me see? Would you show me? Would you increase my faith to believe that you are good. As you begin praying that, I want you to turn or open up or go to, whatever the right term is, to your Bibles in John chapter 10. And we're going to look at a passage, John 10, starting in verse 11, going through verse 15 this morning. And as you go there, let me give you a little context. Jesus is speaking, and he's speaking to a mixed group of religious leaders, Pharisees, and other citizens within Jerusalem. And he's using an analogy of, between, uh, of a shepherd and a sheep to make a point of what God is like and how he relates to his people, all right? And so using that, he says this, and I mean, make it really clear. He, he makes a very clear and direct statement about his goodness, the goodness of God. Here's what he says, verse 11. I am the good shepherd. All right. And we can close our Bibles and we can go home because there it is. Is God good? Well, you have God the Son right there saying, I am the good shepherd. And he's saying, like, I'm the good God. And I'm going to care for my sheep or my people. That's what I'm like. I think, okay, (laughs) that might not convince you. But isn't it helpful to hear it from his own lips? I am the good shepherd. And we might say to him, all right, well, can can you back that up? Can you give me some proof? Why? Why could you make that claim? So he keeps going. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Lays down his life for the sheep. Now, this is a key statement. In fact, Jesus uses this statement, lays down his life five times in eight verses here. He is reinforcing his statement that I'm a good shepherd with this repetition of this statement again and again and again and again and again and again. Because he's saying, this is how you can know. And when this phrase, lay down my life for the sheep, it speaks of a voluntarily, voluntary sacrificial sacrifice or sacrificial death. He says, so here's how you can know that I'm the good shepherd. I'm going to volunteer, I'm going to, volunteer to lay down my life for you, to die in your place. And then he repeats that again and again and again. And then as if that isn't you know, strong enough proof that he's good, he goes on in the next verse to to kind of contrast what he could be like. Here's what he says in verse 12. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and, and scatters them. And he flees because he is a hired hand and he cares nothing for the sheep. I'll stop there. Now, Jesus goes here about the hired hand to draw a contrast to what he's like. He says, here, here's the hired hand. This is what I could have been like. When, when, when evil approaches, when suffering, when, when something approaches that would cause me to have to sacrifice something to care for my sheep, I don't run. Hired hands, they run. They're not willing to sacrifice. They're not willing to, to sacrifice or care, do anything that's going to cost them anything in caring for the sheep, but not me. And the reason that the hired hands, the reason they run is because they care nothing for their sheep, but not me. Now, I care, I care deeply for my sheep. He 
Don't miss it. He's saying he cares deeply for you, for his people. And then he goes on and he talks about this relationship that he enjoys with us, some reason for why he cares so deeply. Verse 14, he says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. And this word know is really telling And John, when he uses the word know, he's not speaking of knowledge as in like knowing mere facts about somebody. But here it's talking about this intimate relational knowledge that God enjoys, that, that Jesus enjoys between us and him. That he actually deeply knows you, knows you intimately. That he cares deeply for you. You matter to him. One reason is because he knows you deeply, that he created you. He, he knit you together. He, he knows everything there is to know about you. And then he, he says this really like mind-blowing statement to help us understand just how deep this relationship is. Verse 15, he says, Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. So what's this relationship like between Jesus and his sheep? Between the shepherd and his sheep, he's just, I know you just as the Father knows me. Like that's a crazy statement, is it not? The, 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 the God the Father knows God the Son from eternity past completely and fully. And Jesus would say, that, that's how I know my sheep. Same way. You matter deeply to me. And I'm the good shepherd. And that's why, as he says one more time here, I lay down my life for the sheep. Is he good? Is God good? According to God himself, he would say, yes. Yes, I am good. And as a result of being good, I care deeply for you. And I know you intimately. And I willingly sacrifice. I don't abandon you. And you can know all these things because I willingly lay down my life for you. To God, friends, God is is good. When we think about Jesus laying down his life for us, normally we think about how much that costs him physically, don't we? We talk about him, how he was flogged and beaten and crucified. That he, in laying down his life for us, went through incredible physical pain and torture. Because he's good. That we could say here on your outlines, it's like one reason we know God is good is because God is good, God suffered. Because God is good, God suffered. But when we think about how Jesus suffered, and we usually just think about the physical side, we miss out, I think, on the thing that actually was the most painful type of suffering that he experienced. Sure, the physical pain was horrendous. But I think Tim Keller does a f- fantastic job laying out the, the other side, the emotional and relational pain that he suffered in laying down his life for us. Let me just read what Keller says in his book, Reason for God. He says, To understand Jesus' suffering at the end of the Gospels, we must remember how he is introduced at their beginning. The Gospel writer John in his first chapter introduces us to the mysterious but crucial concept of God as tripersonal. The Son of God was not created, but took part in creation and has lived throughout all eternity in the bosom of the fathers, John 1, 18 says. That is, in a relationship of absolute intimacy and love. 
but at the end of his life was cut off from the Father. There may be no greater inner agony than the loss of a relationship we desperately want. If a mild acquaintance turns on you, condemns you, and criticizes you, and says she never wants to see you again, well, that's painful. But if someone you're dating does the same thing, or if one of your parents does this to you when you're still a child, its psychological damage is infinitely worse. We cannot fathom, however, what it would be like to lose not just a spousal love or parental love that has lasted several years, but the infinite love of the Father that Jesus had from all eternity. Jesus' sufferings would have been eternally unbearable. When Jesus chose to willingly lay down his life for his sheep, he was choosing to be forsaken by his Father on the cross. Have you ever noticed what Jesus' cry was from the cross? It wasn't, oh, my hands, my hands, oh, they hurt. It wasn't my head, my head, or my back, my back. No, his cry from the cross was, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That his cry from the cross was a cry of incredible emotional and relational pain. But he was willingly forsaken on the cross that we would be adopted into the family of God. That God the Father turned his eyes from God the Son that we could be brought into the family and become sons and daughters of God. Guys, is God good? Yes. He is he's better than we can even wrap our mind around. Keller goes on to say this, that Christianity alone among the world religions, among the world religions claims that God became uniquely and fully human in Jesus and therefore knows firsthand despair, rejection, loneliness, poverty, sorrow, torture, imprisonment, and death. And in his death, God suffers in love, identifying with the abandoned and the God-forsaken. Why did he do it? The Bible says Jesus came on a rescue mission for creation. He had to pay for our sins so that someday he can end evil and suffering without ending us. Is God good? He says, I'm the good shepherd. I willingly lay down my life for my sheep. But then we ask, right? Okay, well, if you're so good, then why do we still experience pain and suffering? That's a fair question. Right? I mean, we see in Jesus that because God's good, he, he willingly suffered. And one day, because he suffered, he will end all suffering without ending us. But why do we still have to, why do we still have to bear the burden of current suffering? The Bible has some really good answers for that question. I, I don't have time to get into them all today. We, we talk about free will. We talk about the priority of love. We could go down those routes. But one thing that I'll share with you that just has personally encouraged me, and I offer it to you to hope that it would be personally encouraged, encouraging to you, is that when I hear people make the objection, and it's a common objection against the Bible of Christianity that is great and, and that's good, the, the common uh, objection is this, right? That it says if a, a good and powerful God exists, he would not allow pointless pain and suffering. But because there is much pointless pain and suffering in the world, the traditional good and powerful God cannot exist. 
And what's really helped me under, in my understanding and, and to bear up under pain and suffering is the, the biblical truth that God is great and God is good, and because he is, there actually is no such thing as pointless pain and suffering. That the logical fallacy there is the idea of pointless pain and suffering when there is a great and good God. I go back to the verses that we looked at just last week. Ephesians 1 and Romans 8. Ephesians 1 says this, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who, hear this, works all things according to the counsel of his will. And when it says all things, it's not just talking about all the good things. It's all things. And Romans 8, 28 says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And his purpose is that he would receive the glory and those who have been called to his name, he's working things out for our good. That's the promise here. All things. And what that means, friends, is that because God is good, we don't suffer in vain. Because God is good, we don't suffer in vain. That the promise is that because God is great and God is good, that he can work all things, even horrible things, and turn them to be for good, for his glory and for our good. And so when you suffer, you can have some sense of hope and some sense of peace, because this isn't random and it can be used for good. And that will help you bear up during this time while you still suffer and there still is pain. Because God is good, we do not suffer in vain. And you might think, okay, well, that's easy for you to say, right? I mean, you're a pastor. You've got to get up here and say those things. But I assure you, it is not easy for me to say. A year and a half ago, when my sister, my little sister, a daughter, a four-month-old daughter died, and I struggled to believe this. Oh, man. But struggling to believe this doesn't make it untrue. And what I would encourage you is if you're struggling to believe this, then lean into it all the more because you're struggling to believe the very thing that will help you get through what you're struggling with right now. And I know I'm not the only one who would say that. If I gave everybody an opportunity to stand up, we'd have many people in this room right now get up and tell their story of tragedy and then still say that God is good and he's the one who got me through it. In fact, I just think about last last month. Last month, and I asked Shelby permission to share this story again and remind you of this, and she, she was happy to do it. You remember last month, Shelby stood up in front of our church on the day that she was baptized, and she told us how on that day, the day that she was baptized, exactly 365 days earlier, she had been raped. And she told our, her story so courageously about how she had run from God as a result and how she was so mad at God, thinking, God, how could you ever let that happen to me? But then she went on to tell the story of how during the past year, God met her where she was at. And God came alongside of her and she began to realize that God had never at any point abandoned her that she had run from him and sworn him off, and yet she, he was there with her all the time. 
And that through that realization, she started to turn to him. And in doing so, she said in her own words, she realized that she could trust him because he was the one that she needed, the one who could make all things new. And what she began to realize is that God was not an abstract savior, that Jesus was her savior in the moment and in her most dire and desperate of needs, and that she could trust him. She ended her testimony right before being baptized with these really eloquent words. She says, I have decided to be baptized today to declare in front of my church that my trust is in God, that he never left me, and even when I left him, And I'm being baptized to give this day to Jesus. Jesus will forever own this day and all days for that matter, for no man can ever take that from me. And at those words, and after her baptism, everybody in our church stood up and cheered. And it was fantastic. And we cheered because of Shelby's faith in the goodness of God, even the most who left him. Why? Because God is good. And her statement that God has never left me even though I left him. Why? Because God is good. As a result of Shelby courageously sharing her story, we've had a number of people in our church come forward with their stories of sexual abuse that they've been holding on to. And they've begun to seek healing as a result. And they've taken that to God and God's begun meeting them and using this community to help them. And in that sense, guys, we begin to see just slightly, but not insignificantly, ways that God is working even the most horrific thing out for good. As here's here's my encouragement to you. Because God is good, we do not suffer in vain. Because he is able to work all things out according to his counsel, his will. And he's able to work all things out for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And so we do not suffer hopelessly. We can have hope and peace, even in the midst of the hardest stuff. Why? Because God is good. And he is. He's the good shepherd who laid down his life for us so that one day he would end all suffering. And until that day comes, he can use it to bring about good. And one more thing I want to say on the topic of is God good is that he is good. One of the other like more encouraging, <laughs> uh, less heavy promises in Scripture is this, that because God is good, he's also, it's the reason why he's the source of everything that is good, right? And that when we think about the reason we have good things in our lives, from our friends to our family to education to whatever you might want to name, the Bible is very clear that all of those come to us from the hand of our Father. Why? Because He's good. In fact, James 1, 16 and 17 puts it very clearly, and it says, Do not be deceived, my brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. And so from the air in our lungs to the roof of our heads to our friends and our family and all that stuff, but most of all, him himself has come to us from our good God. We look at the stuff that we have in our life that's good, and usually we give ourselves credit for it. 
I got that because I worked hard. But hear this. You got that ultimately because God is good. And he is. So what does that mean for us? Well, the note, the full note for this week is this. That because God is good, look elsewhere, elsewhere. That because God is good, I don't have to look elsewhere. And what I'd ask for you is to, like, write that down, to do something that seriously take note of that, to keep that in front of you, because this is an incredible, freeing, true statement. That because God is good, I don't have to look elsewhere. You don't have to look elsewhere for the ultimate love that you long for, or the satisfaction that you're looking for, or the joy that you long for. You don't have to look elsewhere because he is best, and amazingly, he has given us himself. You see, in the verse directly preceding Jesus' statement about being the good shepherd, he says this in John 10, verse 10. He says, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. But I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. That Jesus came that we might have life and have it abundantly. Why? Because he's good. And in John 17, verse 3, when he's praying to the Father, he tells us where this life comes from when he says this. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That that's where eternal life is found. That's where abundant, overflowing life is found. It's in knowing our good God. Now, why would Jesus make that statement? Well, I think Jesus makes that statement because Jesus knows that because God is good, God is better. Because God is good, he is better. And you could fill in after better, anything you want. He's better than that house. He's better than that raise. He's, he's better than that car or that vacation. He's better than the, the person in the cubicle next to you. He's better than those images on the computer screen. That he is better than anything else. See, you were created for him. And he is best. And he's the only one that can truly satisfy that's why abundant life is found in him, not just from him, but it's in him. He is the best. Now think about this. If, if God really is good, then nothing could keep him from giving us the very best thing, right? If he's really good, then he'll, he'll do whatever it takes to give us the very best thing. And then when you step back and you look at Scripture, you see, look at the ridiculous links that God went to to give us himself. He was willing to leave the right hand of the Father. He's willing to suffer physically, emotionally, and relationally, to die and be risen again, that we could enter into his family and get him because he is best. Why do we not have to look elsewhere? Because he's good. Because he's good, he's better. David, another key passage in the Bible where God is linked to being a shepherd. He says this, the Lord is my shepherd, so I shall not want. Why? Because he's my portion. He's my sustenance. He's my strength. He's my satisfaction forever and ever. That's who God is because he's good. We don't have to look elsewhere. One other thing that this means, friends, is that because God is good, his way is best. Because God is good, his way is best. So we don't have to look elsewhere to figure out the best way to live the, the, for further instruction or, or guidance. 
We don't have to go outside of what God says to find life. We can look to him and what he says to say that all his rules, all his guidance, all his instruction are always going to point us to life. Because he's good. His way is best. I love Psalm 119, 68, which says, You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. Put another way, God, you're good. So everything you do is good. What you say is good. So tell me how to live. And we can say that to God because we can know that he is good. And that changes me. That was huge for me because before I would read God's rules and I would look at them to say, okay, this is a burden at best and it's keeping me from life is my thought. But now understanding the goodness of God, when I actually believe it, functionally live in this freedom, then I'm able to say, God, no, no, no. I want you to tell me what to do because I don't doubt your heart for me. I know you're good. You're the good shepherd who laid down his life for me. Therefore, tell me what to do because I see your rules as actually signposts pointing to life not the thing that's keeping me from it. Think about my kids and Camp and Enoch and, and Della and like, like parents who have small children, like you get this, right? Like getting them to eat their food is like one of the hard, Enoch not so, like it really is. It's like, oh my goodness. And, and so uh, Enoch not so much. Like Friday night we're eating dinner, the guy fit, polishes off his food and asks for seconds and, and before Camp or Della had even taken a bite right? Like they, they, and it's not because he just woofed it down. It's because they just sat there looking at their food and telling us that they don't like it. And it's like, eat your food. Please eat your food. (laughs) Why do Chris and I have rules about how they have to eat their food, especially the healthy part of it? Is it because we're mean and we're out to ruin their lives? No, it's because we actually love them and we want them to live healthy lives, right? (laughs) Man, when I can see that God is good, then I look at his instruction, and I don't see it out there to ruin my life, but I see it there as, as signposts for him to point to the best way to live. See, because God is good, his way is best. May God, God, may you help us believe that. That's the note for this week. God is good, so we don't have to look elsewhere. If we believe this, if we know this truth about God, it will set us free. It will set us free to experience true life, a life spent with him instead of looking for life where it can't be found it will set us free because we will trust him and therefore see his word not as a thing keeping us from life but the very thing pointing us to the best way to live. And if we believe he is good, then we will know that even in the midst of the most severe pain and suffering, that he has gone before us, that he has suffered for us so that one day all suffering will end and that now currently he is suffering And now that he currently is with us in our suffering, I should say, working to bring about good, even in the midst of our pain. Friends, if we believe this, we will be set free. We're going to end this morning by taking communion. We take communion as a way to remember how Christ died for us. And in this, what we're remembering is that Jesus' claims about being the good shepherd that willingly laid down his life for us, that was not hypothetical that he actually is the good shepherd that willingly laid down his life for us. And when we take communion, what we hold the cup and we hold the bread, we're remembering Christ's body broken for us and his blood spilled for us. And we're thinking about how he was forsaken on the cross by the Father so that we wouldn't be forsaken in the grave and so that we could be adopted into his family. 
And so I just ask you as you take communion this morning, meditate on the goodness of God to you and ask him to help you believe it more fully so you don't have to look elsewhere. Let me pray. Father God, we love you. We love you because you first loved us. You loved us so much that as our good shepherd, as our awesome God, you willingly laid down your life for us. And Christ, you willingly sacrificed yourself, suffering for us physically, emotionally, relationally, beyond what we can even fathom. And yet, God, we, we, you know, we come to you and we have doubts and we doubt your goodness and life is hard and all that stuff. And God, we just ask that you would help us. Thank you that you never abandon us. Lord, you'd meet us right where we are and you would increase our faith in your goodness. God, would you do that so that we could be set free, that we would be on how to live, Lord, elsewhere for satisfaction, for guidance on how to live, Lord, that we could go to you because you're best and what you say is best. Thank you for dying for us, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.